Welcome, everyone, to episode 113 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're gearing up for Halloween with a Netflix-funded remake of a kind of spooky Hitchcock thriller, Rebecca. Before we get to that, however, with me today, as always, I do have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, what Halloween, or at least socially distant Halloween traditions, will you be partaking in this coming week? Probably none, to be honest with you. I See, the past couple of years, I've looked forward to Halloween because, uh, you know, in law school, every week they had something called Bar Review, where it was like at a different bar every single week. You know, it was kind of where law students would gather on Thursday nights and or, you know, sometimes they would adjust it like if it was a holiday week or something. But Halloween Bar Review was like consistently the most fun bar review of, you, you know, the year. I'd say it was at this. It's always at this one bar. Everyone dresses up. Um, so I will miss going to that this year. Um, and yeah, I don't, I honestly don't have any plans that what, what day is Halloween? I mean, it's Saturday, Saturday, right? It's Saturday. It's Saturday. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll, I will be watching mock trial probably, um, you have another tournament. Yeah. uh, On, on this weekend. So hopefully that won't be scary. Hopefully I won't be scared (laughs) by the performances of my students, but you know what? Anything's possible. Yeah. Can't, can't rule it out, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, unfortunately, probably not dressing up as Bojack Horseman this year for for any events, sadly. But I always have fun trying to come up with a costume. I, I don't I don't know what I would have been. I, I've said this before. I think I said this maybe last year or something. But like one of the one of the main reasons why I wish I wasn't single right now is so that I could have someone to do a couple's costume with. Because I've never got I've never really gotten to do that before. So. Yeah, well, what's number one on your list for couples costumes? I don't know. That's I'd, I'd have to think about it, but I do always think about the the Gilmore Girls episode when they were in uh, when she was in college and they had like a Tarantino Halloween party. That would be a fun one. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of possibilities there. To be Dude, you could have a bromance couple costume just as Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I was gonna say I would Hollywood. love to wear the brown leather jacket of Rick Dalton. Yeah. Like, that would so be cool. that'd be sick, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to work with with Tarantino, probably. You could do Yeah, there is. Yeah. Well, tr- well I I think maybe Rory dressed up as uh, Mia Wallace, maybe when they uh when they did it on Gilmore Girls. But yeah, I mean there's female there's a lot of female characters too. So it, it's it's a it's right for the picking. So I yeah. would love to go to one of those someday. You just gotta get the feet right. That's all that matters for the female characters. Oh gosh. <laughs> all right. Well, why don't we go ahead and you had like, to go there. Get into the well, you brought you brought up Tarantino, so it's your fault, Scott. It's your fault. No, no. <laughs> All right, well, let's go into our review today. Uh, as I already mentioned, this week we will be reviewing Netflix's Ben Wheatley directed remake of a 1940 Hitchcock classic, Rebecca. Rebecca stars Lily James as an unnamed lady's companion turned matron of the Manderley estate after a brief but passionate courtship with the widower, Max de Winter, played by Army Hammer, while on holiday. When their romance is threatened to be cut short, Mr. DeWinter proposes to James's unnamed 20-something and whisks her away from her life of relative servitude and into the grandeur of being Madame DeWinter of Manderley. 
Soon, Mrs. DeWinter learns, however, that not all will be smooth sailing at the coastal estate, as she will have to learn to be the mistress of the house and to live in the presumptively long shadow of Max's first wife, Rebecca, about whose death he refuses to talk. With only Manderley's sinister housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, to rely on for advice and support, the new Mrs. DeWinter finds herself out of her element and finds herself doubting Max's love for her while wondering if he regrets their rushed matrimony. As more of the story unfolds, the history of Max's previous marriage, as well as the demise of his, of his first wife, comes more into question, and James's Mrs. DeWinter must sort through all of these different elements on her own. Scott, was this remake of the Best Picture winning classic worthy of its namesake, or, as we often ask when we are reviewing remakes, did it fail to justify its own existence? Yeah, well, here's the thing about that question. And, you know, you refer to it as a remake and like, yes, that is, you know, logically what you would call it. But Ben Wheatley has actually said that he doesn't consider this to be a remake of the Hitchcock film. And that's because there is a significant plot difference uh, in one specific element. Scott, I don't know if you know about this, but um, the end? there's the end of the movie. Yeah, sort of the the twist um, that comes the the reveal that comes from Max and DeWinter is a little bit different in uh, this movie than in the Hitchcock. Actually, this movie is the one that is faithful to the book, but in the Hitchcock original, they actually couldn't do a certain thing from the book plot because of the Hayes Code, as it was known at the time, which was like a morality code in film um, that basically said there are certain things like you can't have your like protagonists and a movie do like you, 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 the movies at this point in time, I guess what 1940, I think when Rebecca came out, you ha they had to yep. uphold a certain moral standard and had they followed the book um, faithfully, they would have, you know, violated this Hayes code or whatever. Um, and so Hitchcock, Scott, I think we still call that change. a remake, <laughs> but, I, I but Ben Wheatley isn't, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, it, I, it's not me who's saying that. Sure, it's no, like no, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm yeah. laughing a little bit at that because, we still yeah. call that a remake. <laughs> yeah, well, but uh, yes and no, because I think it does like change the tenor of the film a little bit, especially in that third act, right? Like it, sure. it goes from I, like, I actually like the added darkness that comes from the novel. And, it, you know, obviously is is consistent with what we see in this movie. I think the movie, the story loses a little bit of its edge in the Hitchcock film because they have to make this change. But I mean, the Hitchcock film is is superior, no doubt because Hitchcock is a you know superior filmmaker. Um, but I liked this film more than most people. Um, Scott, it's gotten pretty lukewarm reviews. And I'm not going to go out and say that it is like anything super original or that it like, I mean, it very baldly does not take any liberties with the novel. Um, but for me, uh, just like background wise, Rebecca is one of my favorite books, probably. I read it um, as part of a Gothic literature class that I, that I took when I did my study abroad in college. And it was probably the best of the like seven or eight books that we had to read for that class. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed the Hitchcock film. This, like Trial of the Chicago 7 last time, was on, also on my most anticipated of the year list. Um, so I was really looking forward to this film. Um, and it doesn't live up to what I hoped it would be. There is no, there's no denying that, but I still think it is a solid film for people who are fans of Gothic romance and who are fans of the novel for sure. Again, the Hitchcock movie is superior, but I like that we get a film version that also um, 
is, you know, consistent with that significant plot detail in the novel. Um, so I think, honestly, for that alone, I think the movie does justify its existence. It looks great. Uh, visually, it's a really great movie to look at. Um, ben Wheatley is a strange director to be taking this on because he has most, mostly worked in action uh, in the past, films like Kill List and Free Fire. Um, and that was one of the reasons I was intrigued by this movie, because I was like, oh, that's a strange director to be doing this. This could actually be something really sort of unique and interesting. Uh, and like he doesn't really put any sort of a, a flair to it other than making the movie look, you know, good visually. Um, but uh, the you know, the story it like the story of the novel is so good, in my opinion, that it's hard to mess it up by doing a straightforward adaptation like this is. Um, and I understand it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea because I don't think gothic literature, gothic fiction, gothic romance is everyone's cup of tea. Like it, like it is so melodramatic. Like that is the, one of the defining characteristics of gothic, you know, literature that, uh, and, and, you know, that's not something that necessarily everyone goes for. Like some people are going to turn this off and think this is too, melodramatic this is too soapy whatever um but if that's your thing and yeah i i will fully admit that this movie is up my alley in terms of you know movies that i uh generally like and i am a fan of again gothic fiction stuff like that um i think you will enjoy this more than the critics are are giving it credit for i i, I say give it a chance because uh for someone like me again who is a big fan of the novel i think i was mostly satisfied Performances are pretty good, with one exception that I do want to talk about. And I think that the big moments in the story, most of which happen once we get to Manderley, um, I think are all pretty satisfyingly rendered. The first part of the movie dragged a little bit for me when we're having the courtship sort of of Mrs. DeWinter. But once we got to Manderley, um, I thought everything was pretty well executed. So um, this is no classic like Hitchcock's film is. Um, but it's a solidly above average adaptation of a really fantastic novel in my opinion. Got it. I'm not sure what you mean by solidly above average adaptation since, I mean, I guess there has been another adaptation of it, but um, for me, I think the one thing this film has going for it is that it looks amazing. Like the film looks really good. Um, it's, go it's a gorgeous film, like even whether you're in Monte Carlo or whether you're at Manderley, which are like basically the two settings of the movie, it's shot really well. I think they nailed the period element of it and like it's just very easy to look at unfortunately i don't know for me how much more this film does to push it push any push the story forward beyond just looking really good and like i thought it was fine like i thought the performances were fine i thought the story sure i, I don't have a problem with melodrama but i just don't think that any of these characters were super engaging frankly like i, I it, it's always probably going to be tough when you have a nameless protagonist thinking about Tenet, which also has a name, nameless protagonist as well. Not to compare those, not to, not to just bring up Tenet out of, out of nowhere here, but I think it's like really, it takes a lot, right. To, to compel you when the lead character in the film, um, like inherently has very little personality and is intentionally not given much personality to work with, which I think is why, especially the beginning part of the movie, like you were saying, drags a little bit. It's just cause like, I don't think there's really anything to anchor to in those early parts at all. And then when you get to Manderley, you have a little bit more to anchor to. Like you have this underlying story and whatnot about his previous marriage, about Max DeWinter's previous marriage, et cetera. But for me, like Lily James, I just think she's given a really difficult task to make much of this story. And I think 
I don't know. Like, I, I think I, I think I'm falling in the camp of like, I can understand why Ben Wheatley might've been ultimately a weird choice because I don't think he does a very good job um, directing this movie and bringing out the character of the film itself. Because by the time that you even get to the twist in in this movie, I just didn't care. Like, honestly, I just didn't care that much. I didn't find it that interesting. Um, I didn't know the twist was coming because I haven't seen the original uh, 1940 one that I did read where there was the difference. I guess the the uh, the actual act itself was different, maybe in the, in, in the twist. Right. Which is the difference you're talking about. And, well, and I, yeah. In, in one case, there is an act. In the other case, there is yeah, something a, happens to the character. Yeah, yeah that, that that's a good that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. And it, it's it's I find I was it really caught me caught my attention when you said that it, it this version that has the more more intention behind one of the key moments in the movie had like added back an edge that the Hitchcock version lost because of this entire movie was completely edgeless. Like I didn't feel any tension or suspense really in the film at all. Um, and I found that really surprising because of what I know about the you know about the original. And so I found it to be a pretty disappointing watch overall, but not in like in an up not like in any sort of like upsetting way like it was nice to look at it was a fine way to pass 100 minutes or however long this movie it might be a little bit longer than that no it's a full two hours 120 minutes um it wouldn't be one that i say you have to go watch but if you're interested in it like you were saying scott yeah, yeah like check like check it out you'd, you'll probably enjoy it but frankly you're gonna forget about this movie in a week yeah, I, I don't. I mean, that's that's probably fair. If you, if you're not someone who is predisposed to like these types of things, I can't see this being the film that is that's going to like be your gateway drug or anything. Uh, yeah. But I think it is preaching to the choir to some extent, and I guess I am just more a member of the choir than you are. Yeah. So I, I guess Scott, I, I I hate to maybe jump right to this question already, but I feel it feels like <laughs> we're kind of already there, so I I want to do it. And the question we always ask, so you probably know what's coming here, is like. How many times out of 10 are you going to watch this version of Rebecca? And like for me, I haven't seen the original, but I'm I when I first watched this, I kind of thought there's no way Scott would ever watch this version over the original. But maybe I'm wrong here because of the way the way that you've been talking. But is there is there a world in which you watch this version over Hitchcock's original? Maybe two or three times out of 10. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a significant number, but, um, you know, I like the cast members. I, I I actually think that Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers is a step up on the actor actress who played Mrs. Danvers, and I can't remember her name, uh, that played Mrs. Danvers in the original. But um, you know, I, I like uh I like uh Lily James in this. Again, I think the film looks great. I like the fact that, you know, we get that certain plot decision. Um and it's just, you know, it's a more modern looking film. Uh, and I think for that reason, I will, I, I might v- revisit it two or three times out of 10. But yes, I, I'm not gonna, you know, make any hay about the fact that Hitchcock's film is certainly better. Hitchcock is a better filmmaker. Um, he created a more satisfying, suspenseful film. Um, but I don't think this remake is entirely valueless. Um, because I think it allows us to see, you know, how maybe the tone of the story changes a little bit when you know, X things, X thing happens as opposed to Y thing that happened in Hitchcock's film. Yeah. And I guess I totally hear where you're coming from there. I, I wish that I could have felt that. Like, I wish I could have felt that suspense over the course of the film and then think about how that, the, how that edge shifts compared to the original. But I, yeah, unfortunately I just, I just didn't get that. Um, sadly it was a, it was a bummer a bit for me, but I guess moving on from that, you've already talked, started talking about the cast. 
Uh, so I want to dive a little bit deeper there. Also, Judith Anderson played Mrs. Danvers in the original. Yeah. That uh, okay. That's that's yeah. I knew it wasn't somebody that was like a you know huge name or anything, but yeah. No, you don't know Judith. But you don't know Judith. I thought was really good. Yeah. I mean, she's certainly not on the level of Joan Fontaine or Laurence Olivier, who played sure. uh, You know, Mrs. De Winter and Max in the original. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so the cast. So, I mean, Lily James is the lead here. Yes, Army Hammer, Kristen Scott Thomas are probably the, the obviously the two biggest supporting characters as well, just from based on the conversation we've already been having. But let's start with Lily James. You think that she sounds like did a pretty good job in this role. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about your of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're commenting on the fact that she seems a little personality-less. I think that's kind of the point of the character yeah, I do. for me, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah, because like Rebecca yeah, is supposed to be this person who is just so much more gregarious you know she threw the manderly ball just everyone seemed to to love her uh on the surface you know the people that didn't really know her um seemed to love her um yeah. mrs danvers obviously is obsessed with her um and she's just this huge personality and i think you know mrs de winter is supposed to be sort of uh the, the opposite of that and that's why you know people react the way that they do to her and i and i think lily james is effectively sort of like timid and you know, just like enraptured that this older, richer man would take any sort of interest in her whatsoever. Um, and I think she she captures that pretty well. The, the one thing I will say, right, is that everyone keeps commenting on the fact that she's just like very plain and average, whatever. And this 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 is the same thing that I, I mean, I feel the same way about the original, honestly, and Joan Fontaine. Like, Lily James is a beautiful woman. Like it, it has to be said, like, I think this character is supposed to be like, um, you know, just again, very average. She is a paid companion to this, you know, older woman played by Ann Dowd at the start of the movie, because, um, you know, because I guess, you know, each one of them need friends of their own in a way. It's sort of a mutually beneficial relationship for them. It doesn't seem like, the thirties were different, uh, Scott. The thirties were different. Yeah, I, I know. But, um, but <laughs> I, my, my point is like, it seems strange that like everyone is commenting on the fact that, Oh, you're not what I expected or whatever. Uh, like just when they see her for the first time, I'm like, well, like I could see, you know, on physically wise, like these two people being matched up together, like they're both very attractive individuals. Um, at, so, so that is just a little weird to me that they cast someone like her for that reason. But, you know, they did the same thing. Like, I think you could say the same about Joan Fontaine, the original. But um, but other than that, I think the performance works. Uh, again, I think she does, like, the innocent um, new wife thing really well. I mean, you know, some of the big moments are, like, when she wears the dress, right? Like, that's one of the big moments in the story, when she comes down the stairs wearing the dress and the, her reaction and everything to that. And you, you believe that she could be easily like wound around the finger of Mrs. Danvers, right? Who is manipulating um, her throughout the film. She's very impressionable. She gives off that sort of vibe. And so I think, yeah, maybe there's not a lot for you as the audience to connect to. Um, but, you know, that, that's kind of the point, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily make for a satisfying character. Again, there, that's always the sort of trade-off there of like, hey, do we, you know, maybe we're authentic here to who this character truly is. But maybe in the process we lose something, you know, that the audience wants to have some sort of emotional connection to this character. But I don't know, just liking the story, liking the characters coming into the movie, uh, I think was a little bit of a benefit. For me. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would be a benefit. It's just one of those things 
where I wonder, and, and I've wondered this actually a lot this year as we've watched movies, is that would my impression on certain aspects of, you know, all the films that we've been reviewing since coronavirus hit, would they be different if I'd seen them in a theater? And I think that this might be a movie that my impression might have been a little bit different if I'd seen it in a theater. Because yeah. when I'm watching a movie at home, on my couch, whatever, like I get distracted a lot more easily than I ever would in a theater, right? Like I hardly ever look at my phone in a theater and I'll pull up my phone if I start to get bored in a movie if I'm sitting on the couch. And I think that this film, because of the way it starts and because you don't have, again, I think she plays the role well, but it's just like it, it, it the character doesn't grab me at first, right? I think on paper, this character is very um, engaging later on when you get more into the meat of the story. And again, you have this sort of dynamic between her and Max and her and Mrs. Danvers and, you know, her and even her handmaiden, right? Like, I think the, that you have these interesting dynamics that develop. But at that point, like, I'm just, I'm not invested in the character and frankly, just a bit distracted by the whole thing. And maybe that's my own fault as a, as a movie watcher there. But also, I wonder if like, you know, in a movie theater, you know, I'm not going to leave. I don't walk out of movies ever. I can't think of the last time if, that, if that's ever even happened. And I certainly would be more focused. And, and I wonder if that extra 20 or 30 minutes of my attention before I just kind of check out would have made a big difference in this movie. But the, the reality is, is that I, I just wasn't engaged um, with this character in, in, in that way at this point. And, and so what I recognize definitely is and i don't i don't disagree with saying i think that's part of the point of the opening part and i think that that lily james plays that well enough uh it just doesn't do it for me i guess in in this particular setting at home you know watching it on netflix on my tv which is un, which is unfortunate but the reality of it i suppose but yeah i i definitely am not blaming uh any one actor or actress in this film although we'll get to a performance that you mentioned that maybe you were less enchanted with here in a second but unfortunately yeah i just it didn't work it didn't do much for me even though i recognize Hey, this was this. She probably played this the way it was meant to be played, um, but yeah. it, it just didn't do it. And you know, to to be honest, this film was always going to come out on Netflix. This was a Netflix yeah. film from the beginning, totally. so this isn't even a movie that like you know COVID yeah. um, kept us from seeing in theaters. So yeah, yeah maybe that right. was just a, maybe that was a bad decision on their part. I guess it is. Well, no, I don't even think it's a bad decision. Point, yeah, yeah I, I just think that um, my honestly, my attention span is just shorter at yeah. home and. As is most people's, I think. Exactly, yeah. And I and I only say that to say, not not to say, oh, I wish I'd seen this in the theater, which I do wish I'd seen this in the theater. It's a gorgeous film to watch. Um, but because I've been thinking about this question as I've thought about movies that I've been, you know, less in, you know, finding myself, you know, my mind wandering a little bit more during movies. Um, maybe just because everything is terrible in the world these <laughs> days, too. Uh, but yeah, regardless, that's kind of where I was landing on on this particular character in this film. Um, but moving on from that, that, you know, the two main supporting roles talked to mention them already, but want to talk more about them too. One, I suspect from what you've been saying that you think is a strong performance in Kristen Scott Thomas and Mrs. Danvers. And one that I'm assuming is the one that you're referring to when you say that is less enchanting to you. And that's what army hammer as Max to winter Scott, where do you want to start first? Yeah, let's start with the, uh, the good. I think Kristen Scott Thomas is great as Mrs. Danvers, you know, this sort of, omnipresent figure almost at Manderley, yeah. um, who is, you know, sort of always there to remind Mrs. DeWinter that, hey, you're not Rebecca. You're you'll never be Rebecca. You're always going to be living in Rebecca's shadow. Um, and you need to to live with that instead of trying to rebel against um, you know, this perception. Um, and 
yeah, I think she's a, a very clever manipulator. Like, you know, she um, obviously at, there's a point in the film where you think, oh, she's sort of reconciled with Mrs. DeWinter and, you know, it is, um, is on good terms with her, has learned to accept her. And of course, that's just all pl- part of this part of the scheme, right? You know, to get her in the dress, whatever, to get Max to, to freak out. But yeah, I mean, I think she she owns the big her her big scene, right? Which is the famous trying to get her to jump out of the window uh, scene, trying to get Rebecca to, or uh, Mrs. De Winter to jump out of the window scene. Um, that I think again is is one of the things. Like when you think about the story of Rebecca, if you want to think about the big moments in the story of Rebecca, is definitely one of them. Um, and I I think you know she comes off as very cold, calculating, persuasive. Um, exactly what this character is meant to be. Um, and, um, and ultimately, you know, is, um, sort of has to reconcile with the fact that everything she thought she believed is a lie, um, and, you know, really can't handle that. And that's, you know, why a lot of the, the very final moments of the movie end up transpiring. Um, so I think it was a very powerful, um, performance. And I think, um, you know, her, her presence was always felt. Um, even when she wasn't on screen, once we got to the Manderley segment of the film, which is exactly what I think should be the case with Mrs. Danvers. And I, I mean, like she, she and Rebecca, right, are both sort of these uh, presences. Rebecca is more of like the ghostly presence. And then uh, Mrs. Danvers is kind of the physical manifestation of that, of, uh, you know, hey, we're here to remind, again, Mrs. DeWinter that um, you're always going to be in the shadow of the previous wife. Um, and, you know, try to wear her down that way. So I, I think it's a very effective performance. Uh, as for Army Hammer, I don't necessarily feel that way. I, I thought he was lacking charisma, I guess, is um, is my main critique about him. I mean, I, I, again, he's a, he's a good-looking guy, but other than that, I don't know exactly what it is. And this is why I struggled a little bit with the first part of the film. I don't get why she is so drawn in by him from the just like enraptured with him the first time she even sees him right in the hotel lobby. Um, other than, you know, like uh, the, her friend and Dowd's character has said a couple of things like about how, that he's wealthy or whatever, that he lives at Manderley. Um, but she doesn't even know what Manderley is at that point. Um, so I, I think he really has a lot to do in that first segment of the film to make us believe that this, you know, woman would just be captivated by him. And I just felt like it was a little bit protracted. There's a couple, I mean, you know, they have a couple conversations or whatever about like their own personal lives. And I think we're supposed to glean from that, that, oh, there's some kind of connection here, right? Because they've opened up to each other, but there's just not enough of that. I don't think I'm not saying the movie should be longer, um, (laughs) but you know, maybe this is just one of the things that happens when you adapt a novel to film, right? You have to cut some things down and, and some, there are just some segments, some parts of the story that are going to, you know, not hit like they should when they are trimmed down. And I think the courtship of Mrs. DeWinter is, is probably an example of that. Fortunately, I think that uh, he becomes less important in the movie as it goes on. Uh, I think it, it becomes more about that, tug of war between um between Mrs. DeWinter and Mrs. Danvers to some extent. He, you know, he comes back in a little bit in the third act because he kind of gets thrust into the spotlight. But I think that um he wasn't on screen too much in, you know, the the latter half of the film probably. And 
I was okay with that uh, because I don't know. It was he, he's and he's a good actor, right? He's been uh, compelling in other stuff, but he just seemed to be phoning it in a little bit here and maybe relying on like his natural good looks or whatever to like take this character, um, you know, where where it should be as like this, you know, super charismatic and engaging rich man who would, you know, again, draw in this impressionable young woman. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess to go back to Kristen Scott Thomas for a second, then I, I will also give my thoughts on Army Hammer. I, I think, look, she's definitely the best in the cast for me. I also think she has by far the most interesting role of them, right? Like she has the most to do, at least, you know, very clearly on the surface has, has the most to do and the most visible, I guess, almost pulling of the strings. I don't know what the right way to phrase that is. But yeah, and I think she does it really, really well. This was probably from from the acting perspective, definitely the strongest one for me. I, I don't disagree with anything that you were saying there. And yeah, look, that scene in Rebecca's old room, right? Very compelling stuff from her. Um, and and I think that the dynamic between her and uh, Lily James it, it works in those moments, right? Like, that's where I feel like Lily James is at her best is when she's sharing the screen with this character and is, and they're playing off of each other or mainly Lily James is playing off of Kristen Scott Thomas. I really, I really like that part. Army hammer again. He's fine. Like he's fine in this film. I'm going to this, I think, and this will segue us into talking more about the plot over and the, and the story overall, Scott, but I want to ask, I want to say this in the form of a question and get your thoughts on it is that I think that it is not army hammer phoning it in. In fact, I think it might be that Ben Wheatley doesn't know how to get any of the genre out of this movie. I don't think he knows how to do romance. I don't think he knows how to do horror. Uh, I don't think this, like this movie doesn't build tension at all. There's no, it's not a lack of chemistry between Army Hammer and Lily James. I think they have chemistry. It's just that like, again, like these characters aren't interesting. There's nothing particularly compelling about them. And that's obviously not true to the material because the materials, it's one of your favorite novels. Like it, it made the material made a really compelling movie back in 1940. And so honestly, I just can't help but think that Ben Wheatley just did not do a very good job at all uh, with this film, Scott. And I'd wanted to get your thoughts as we kind of segue into talking about, you know, we'll talk about the twist next and, and things like that and building tension in the, in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that romance wise, again, that's kind of the last point I was making that I think the romance is lacking here. I didn't yeah. feel the spark between Lily James and Army Hammer. Um, I, you know, I was reasonably, yeah, yeah, I found it reasonably suspenseful. I think that like Hitchcock's movie is superior. I mean, obviously he knows probably better than any director ever how to generate suspense. Yeah. Honestly, Scott, mean, I'm not even meaning to compare because I don't. Yeah, I haven't seen the original. I'm saying like, I did yeah. not find this movie suspenseful at all, hardly. Yeah, well, but I, as like a, a comparison point, I think that he makes it much more of a ghost story like Hitchcock does. And, you know, you, again, you really feel like Rebecca lingering in inside the mansion at, you know, every, every turn. I don't know that you necessarily get that in this movie. And, and because of that, I think maybe it, it loses a little bit. I think the suspense that is there is probably sort of just in this mystery of what happened to Rebecca, right? Because we hear some, you know, Jack Favell, right? Who's this sort of mysterious character that Sam Riley plays shows up and is, you know, he's Rebecca's cousin, but there's something that's not quite right about him. Mrs. Danvers obviously has this perception of, um, of Rebecca, you know, Max is going off on long business trips and nobody really knows what he's doing. Um, I, I think there's some suspense there, at least for me. And, you know, what exactly happened here? Like uh, with this rich guy and his big estate and his wife that presumably everyone loves, 
Uh, yeah. And then the reveal for me, like, generates some, some more, sus- more suspense to the end of the movie. And we can go ahead and talk about the yeah, reveal, right? right. The, the difference here is that Max actually is is the one who killed Rebecca. In the original film, Rebecca, it has, it's an accident. She trips and falls and dies. Um, here, Max shoots him, shoots her uh, after she, you know, starts pushing his buttons one too many times. Yeah, um, I mean, t- telling him to pull the trigger. Yeah, literally begging him to shoot her. Um, and so I think the suspense maybe is at its highest in this last part of the movie, not necessarily in the sense of, oh, is Max going to get away with it? Uh, you know, are they going to be able to prove that, or, you know, it, are they going to be able to come up with some sort of story in which Max is able to be excused? Because obviously we know he did do it, right? Like he is guilty. He did kill Rebecca, but, you know, we're supposed to feel like, hey, this isn't right. He shouldn't be punished for this. But for me, there's suspense in like, wow, can can she actually trust him? Like, y- you know, this is what uh, he says yeah. about Re- Rebecca, right? But everyone else was obviously enraptured by Rebecca. Is this just sort of his, um, you know, after the fact rationalization of what happened? The fact that maybe he actually, you know, premeditated murder, like, you know, because he's actually evil or whatever. And with the last image of the film, right? They're like embracing and it's like a close up on her face. And there's a real uncertainty in her look. I thought that was a really strong image to end the film on. There's a real uncertainty in her facial expression. Uh, as to like, hey, you know, everything should be right here, right? Like they're on vacation. They go to Egypt, I think it is. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like everything's good now. We've gotten Rebecca out of our lives. We've gotten um, Mrs. Danvers. We've moved away from Manderley. But there's something there that seems like, hey, I, I, I there's something that still doesn't sit quite right with me. That's how Mrs. DeWinter seems to feel. And I think that's effective because, yeah, I think that is an interesting thing that, you know, again, keeping this plot element from the book, an interesting layer that it adds to the story of, um, you know, is Max actually just gaslighting her or whatever? Like, is he actually a bad person? And everyone was, else was actually right about Rebecca and that she was she was nice. And now she, now Mrs. DeWinter is just going to be his unwitting next victim. And you don't get that in the Hitchcock film. Like that's it's a much more sentimental view, obviously, because it had to be again because of the Hayes Code. But um you know, there, there's that element is really not present in the Hitchcock movie because, um, yeah, sure, Max, he didn't like Rebecca, um, but he's not the one who pulls the trigger and kills her. It's it's an accident. So I think the, there's there's an edge there that I liked in that, you know, added some suspense um, for me, whereas other parts of the film were probably lacking suspense that was present in Hitchcock's original. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you're making. Get, get, honestly, you hearing hearing you describe all that just gives me some real Gone Girl vibes uh, from this movie. <laughs> so I wonder, I wonder if there was some inspiration there from Jillian for Jillian Flynn's writing about this particular relationship between Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike's character, yeah. whose names I can't remember right now. Obviously, that was a book before it was a movie. Nick and but, Amy Dunn. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Anyway, I think uh, going back to this point that you're making here is Scott. I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I wonder if it's just the fact that you know there's supposed to be suspense and tension around these different plot elements and you know how to like what to pick up on in the film overall. Cause I just didn't have that experience at all when I was watching the movie. Like I didn't know what was coming. So I didn't really know what to be even like thinking or focused on. Honestly, Scott, I think I thought this was going to take some like weird phantom thread angle type thing where, um, 
where Lily James, you know, Mrs. DeWinter kind of just becomes Rebecca, right? I thought there was going to be some sort of like personality, weird, like psychological shift in it overall. And obviously that's not at all the direction the movie goes in um, or the original story, which I wasn't familiar with. So look, I, I, maybe it's just that I was, you know, I had the minimum context you could have for this one was, and I literally didn't know what was going to happen. And so I didn't know what things to pick up on exactly that are weird and whatnot. And uh, maybe I was a bit, a bit dim on this one for that you know related to that but uh i just didn't pick up on those things and that's that it, it made the experience underwhelming overall from a tension building perspective and a genre building perspective because i'm all about like building tension i mean as much as i'm not the biggest horror movie friend i i love thrillers i do love thrillers and i love that the, the way that tension builds in those because that is that really works for me i just didn't get any of that in this movie and i definitely didn't get any of the romance either to go back on that point so for me, it just felt like a, a failure in, in in genre exercise almost. And I don't really, I can't really think of another, uh, anywhere else to point the finger other than Ben Wheatley on that front. But overall, look, the twist I didn't see coming. I definitely can appreciate that it adds an element uh, from what, from the context you're describing that, that could, that, you know, you kind of wish that Hitchcock could have done that, gone that route and seen what Hitchcock would have yeah. done with it for sure. Uh, right. Cause that is definitely a more interesting character study then uh especially as it relates to not not just max max's character but also mrs de winter's character um and you just don't get that in the original and that you do get some of that here you know i didn't pick up on the final uh shot that you're talking about there and the and the i don't know hesitancy almost of of this character and the relationship that she has with max uh although i certainly believe you that that was you know that was there and i just didn't pick up on it again Maybe I wasn't thinking about it at all, but yeah, I can definitely see how it adds some dimensionality for someone who has more, who is more familiar with the story and has also seen Hitchcock's version and how that is, you know, not their own fault, but again, not necessarily as faithful as, as a true fan of the novel might want a movie adaptation to be. But again, I just didn't get any of that. Unfortunately, like, like the plot twist is interesting, but it was not, not, not that I didn't see it coming as a bad thing. Cause not seeing a plot twist coming is fine, but the impact of the plot twist itself, at that point, again, it just underwhelmed, even though I feel like it shouldn't have. Um, and, and that was where I struggled a little bit with with the twist. I mean, look, I think maybe what we're saying is that I am more of the ideal audience for this sure. movie as, you know, having familiarity yeah. with with the novel or at the very least coming in with an appreciation for this genre already and an understanding maybe of some of the conventions of the gothic genre, like the type of things that you can come to expect in these types of movies. I think. Having, you know, if you're a fan of like, you know, the Brontes and Jane Austen and Mary Shelley and all of that, like, you know, you're going to get similar vibes from this type. Of really? I, I just I guess I just I just disagree with that um, on at least like the Jane Austen and Bronte front. Like, I don't think the movie gets the, gets those vibes at all. Like comparing that to, you know, Pride and Prejudice. And I mean, you get you get you get the period elements of it, if that's what you're talking about. But like, I don't know, there. I just well, don't. I mean, there's definitely again. There's the the setting. There's the mel melodrama aspect of it. There's the romance between like this impressionable young woman. I mean, that's freaking Jane Eyre. That is a lot of Jane Austen's books. Okay, okay, um, yeah, th that's right. I guess what I'm saying is that I don't the like, thriller element not as much. Yes, but like yeah. it's again, it's it's all in the same universe for me at least. I mean, that these are all the books that I read for but Jane, but Jane my class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but this is just like, so, this is such a different kind of story than all of those. Cause it's trying to be, 
you know, a mystery ultimately or a horror or whatever. I don't know how you'd classify the it's, original. It's book. a, I mean, but it's, it is partially a romance too. Like yeah, I think yeah, yeah, because the romance part is weak in this movie, we don't, we don't even necessarily think about it like that, but like, no, you I, know, the novel and everything is, but yes, it is not only that as you would, as it would be in like a, um, but I mean, even Jane Eyre has a little bit of like, Hey, the, you know, the woman in the attic or whatever, that's a little sure. bit of a ghost aspect to that too. But yeah, I mean, I guess most of Jane Austen's are sort of, you know, so- social class and uh, mostly about the romance, but I still, I mean, they, they all fall under the Gothic umbrella. was the point. I was trying. Sure. I guess, I, I guess a better way to put it is that like, I don't get those vibes because this movie isn't good. <laughs> like in my, in my opinion, like it, you just don't get the impact of those stories like if you want something that's like jane you know a jane austen adaptation just go watch pride and prejudice like just it's 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 gonna be more enjoyable uh in my opinion than this one if that's what you're looking for you know um not that there's not value in this but if like that's what you're trying to find i just don't think that you find it here not that you don't get those vibes from it which uh, granted is what you said so I, I think you are right at that point but like you certainly get the vibes but uh, I don't think you get the execution for me. I do want to move us along because we have been um, going on this for a little bit. So uh, I had a couple other bullet points to, for us to hit is that talking about the kind of the ghostless ghost story element of it. It's so half hearted in this version. Like, I don't even know if they were even trying to allude to like this sort of like presence of Rebecca in the house. I mean, I think it does a little bit. Um but nothing meaningful. Whereas it sounds like from what you're saying, that was one of the big focuses of building suspension suspense and Hitchcock's version. I don't know if you want to add any other thoughts about that or we can move on, but I, I did jot that note down in my, in my uh, materials. Yeah. I, I don't know that I have too much more to say. I, I do think I agree. Like the supernatural ghostly horror aspect of this film is, is definitely missing. I mean, you know, you always get the sense that Rebecca is dead and gone. There's never really a, um, yeah. a feeling that um could there oh, really be a ghost she's, yeah could she actually still be alive even um you yeah. know but yeah that that she's still haunting manderley or whatever it's more a question of like yeah is is uh mrs de winter gonna become rebecca or is she gonna resist you know the pressures from everyone else yeah then that's the direction i thought the film was going i thought she was going to become rebecca and have this really interesting psychological well she does for a brief second right when she puts the dress on that's That's the thing that's 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 the moment that um and and that you know that that is kind of where the story goes because she she, you know she thinks that's what max wants maybe is for her to become rebecca again and then the big reveal right is that no he that is the exact opposite of what he wants because he you know hated rebecca yeah and i mean she doesn't even know that it's rebecca on the wall wearing the dress that she's uh, putting yes. on too. That's, an, that's where I thought it was going to be interesting. And then for the film to go, you know, you like 180 opposite of your expectations in that moment of it being a huge turnoff for Max. Uh, that's that's where like the, that was to me. That was the first twist in the movie was I didn't see yeah. that coming because yeah. I thought it was going to lean more into that element, not away from it. But anyway, I think that should do it unless there's anything else you want to add. The last thing I had noted, I think we really talked about at length already, and that is um you know, comparisons to the, to the original version and also maybe what the point of this remake was. But I think we covered both those is that it's to actually, you know, tell a version of the story that is that is faithful to the original and adding that extra edge as unsuccessful as it was for me, adding that extra edge that you were talking about relative to the original. But I don't know if you have anything else to add around what the point of this remake might have been other than just to get subscribers for Netflix. I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's a, it's an adaptation that goes in a wildly new direction. Um, you know, in, in fact, it is more faithful than the, the Hitchcock version, like like we've made the point of. Um, but, you know, that was OK for me. It's been 70 years, whatever, since the Hitchcock version. Uh, I'm fine with. Uh, yeah, I'm fine with the straightforward uh, modern adaptation um, to keep the story alive. Right. Like maybe this will encourage some people to go back and watch the original one or read the book, which I think are very worthy things to do because yeah. um, both of those things are very, very good. So you're telling me if Lion King had just waited 60 more years, it could have justified its existence to modernize it. Uh, only if it's uh, telling, it's, uh, turning people on to go watching uh, Hamlet. <laughs> or reading yeah. Hamlet, I mean, yeah. I mean, people would have been better served to uh, watch Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, Hamlet probably than watch the remake of The Lion King. But Yeah, but at least this isn't right a shot-by-shot shot remake of uh, Hitchcock's movie, I guess is, is uh, what we can say there. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to do a side by side comparison to be able to judge that for myself. But I take your word for it because, uh, look, it's one of your favorite books. And you for starters, it's movie. in color. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's where they messed up. They should have made it black and white. No, it would have been better. Yeah. Uh, anyway. All right, Scott, let's let's enter the wrap up phase. What was your favorite scene or moment from Rebecca? It is the dress scene. I love the image of her standing in front of the painting and like, the, again, the suspenseful moment of how is Max going to react to this? Is he going to? Um, be on board? Is he going to, you know, be reviled by it, which is obviously the, what, what does end up happening. And that's really the turning point in the story. And I think uh, that is a moment where Ben Wheatley's direction does a good job. I think that that moment sh pops and shines like it should. Um, and of course, I do want to mention, you know, that the opening line is one of the most famous opening lines in literature. Last night, I dreamed I went to Manderley. And so, you know, anytime I hear that, when, when the movie started and I heard the line, I was like, I'm ready. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's not anything that the movie did, but at least they didn't drop that line out of the movie. At least they, you know, had her had her say the line. So um, that was good. If only she just said that the entire movie instead of anything else, then maybe you would have liked it even more. I'm obviously joking about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So for me, I'm going back and forth, but I'll uh, I'm a little bit surprised you didn't choose the courtroom drama scene, Scott. I mean, there was a whole courtroom drama in this in the third act. Oh, yeah. Of How course. could you not have chosen that? um the no, inquest for, yes I, I i like the moment where the final twist i think that you might add well maybe not the final one there's a bunch of twists towards the end of this movie but i like the one where she's trying to figure out you know a way to get max out of this and what was really going on with the whole thing and i like this you know where she breaks into the doctor's office and you have her finding that oh she actually had cancer and whatnot and then there's this line between the investigators right for the court and the doctor's like, I'm a women's doctor. No, the, the women's cancer doctor. And it's, and it's just like this kind of, sort of yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Guffaw from from the investigator. I enjoyed that moment. That was a nice moment. Cool. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving the 2020 version of Rebecca? Uh, 7.0. It's totally fine. Uh, I, I had I reasonably enjoyed myself. If you're not, you know, familiar with the uh, the source material. I don't know how much you'll enjoy it, but if you think this might be your jam, it probably will be. If you are thinking about giving it a chance on something that you wouldn't normally give it a chance on, give a chance on, you probably aren't going to feel that great about it because, you know, not the greatest reviews, middling audience score. Um, I think this has a very specific audience. I just happen to be in that audience. 
Yeah, it's a shame because I think I think that it could have had a better. I, I'm maybe I'm hammering this too much, but like I think it could have had a bigger audience if it had a, if if it had been executed better by the director. But yeah, uh, that's neither here nor there now, and it is what it is. I guess I am definitely not in the target audience, even though I, I honestly I do like the genre. So I'm a bit disappointed that I didn't enjoy this more, and especially when you add the 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 genre twist of adding this sort of mystery element to it, and this thriller element to it. I think that that's even more in my wheelhouse, right? But that lack of familiarity with the source material, I honestly, Scott, I, I really do believe that is a big difference here. Um, and unfortunately, I'm definitely kind of more in line with the critics. I'm giving it a 4.5. All right, well, that will do it for our review of Rebecca. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking casting updates, including the latest for Brad Pitt, as well as the normal people breakout, Daisy Edgar Jones. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I mentioned before the break, we are talking about some recent casting updates, first of which for recent Oscar winner Brad Pitt, who will be starring with Aaron Taylor Johnson in a film called Bullet Train. That'll be his next project. The concept of this film, Scott, is that it is a uh, a movie where set on a train. You like movies set on trains, right? Murder on the Orient Express. Strangers on a train. Strangers on a train. Three Tend to Yuma was the one I was about to say. It's about trying to get someone to a train. Not, most of the movie doesn't actually take place on the train, but I take your point. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's, that's a fair point. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so so in the, in the long lineage of movies with people on trains, uh, this is going to be the next one in that, I guess. And it's going to be starring Brad Pitt in the lead role, as well as there will be four other main members of the cast, and these all are playing bounty hunters on a train in Tokyo, or going to Tokyo, I should say, that are all trying to kill each other. So sounds like a pretty cool concept. Obviously, Brad Pitt just came off winning an Oscar for his supporting role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Aaron Taylor Johnson, although not as, uh, I guess, lavished with awards yet in his career as Brad Pitt, or at least not the nominations that Brad Pitt has had, um, certainly is coming off of a high point for me and that I really liked his performance in Tenet, uh, albeit a minor role somewhat. I think that he played that really well. And then going into this, it's kind of exciting to see this duo going to be combating each other along with three other people who are yet to be cast what do you think yeah uh i i think this sounds really cool um that they're doing sort of an action type movie. I, I mean you don't you know you don't necessarily see brad pitt doing that type of movie anymore maybe he's going full tom cruise now and he's just going to become an action star or whatever but i'm fine um, with it send it yeah but um I like. I think trains are good settings for thrillers and action movies. Um, yeah. I think Aaron Taylor Johnson is someone who is underrated. Maybe to your point, um, you know, you you go back to like Nocturnal Animals. He was yeah. great in that. Um, Very creepy. Got a Golden Globe nomination, I think, for that. But um, yeah, I think he. I think he's a good actor. I think this will be a fun sort of tête-à-tête action film, um, and I I look forward to uh, to seeing it. I don't know that I have too much more to add. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm. I don't even know when this film is supposed to come out. I doubt it's going to be filming immediately, although it could be wrong. I mean, production has begun again in, in for many projects in Hollywood, although we'll see if they get shut down again as this latest surge of coronavirus hits. But look, hopefully we're getting this maybe at the end of next year at the start of 2022. I don't know, but it's exciting. Uh, something to look forward to. Sounds like it could be one of those sort of, I don't want to say filler movies, but movies that you go out in the summer between the big, big blockbusters to enjoy. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, but could be could be cool. I hope I'm looking forward to it 
uh, as I will normally look forward to a film with Brad Pitt and Aaron Taylor Johnson. And it's cool to see Brad Pitt doing that after his Oscar winning role, like, right? That he comes yeah. off of his an Oscar winning role and he decides to go do something genre uh, fair, which is which is cool. Yeah, I, I mean, respect that. Ad Astra also also genre fair uh, as well. So he, he just really does. Yeah, a, a, a lot more cerebral than your average sci-fi film. Okay, sure. Yeah, I was thinking more like genre as cerebral being in the sense of the genre. But yes, and okay. we were during the break. We were talking about how Arrival had a bad cinema score, you know, which seems weird. But I think Ad Astra would maybe even has a worse cinema score than Arrival. I, I well, Arrival didn't have a bad cinema score. Just it had B, to be, B is underrated. Not but. not matching the quality of the film. Let's put certainly it that way. not. And I'm sure Ad Astra's is probably the same way. Maybe it's not like that low, but uh, my my point in saying that is it's not like if you're a sci-fi fan, if you're a fan of like your average sci-fi movie and you you turn up for Ad Astra, you might not necessarily enjoy it. If you're a fan of, um, you know, your average action movie, I think Bullet Train will probably be up your alley. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, B minus for Ad Astra. So, yeah. Slightly worse than Arrival. Look, frankly, I don't even know why you like go and <laughs> go into these types of movies and expect uh, anything different. Like Ad Astro was, was never advertised. Like it's freaking James Gray. I mean, I guess people don't Google who James Gray is, but like you're not yeah, going to get an action film. People Gray. just don't even really like they don't even pay attention to like how movies are ad- advertised like we do. Like I, we we are very much the anomaly here, I yeah. think, is the the problem. I, I, I don't know that we necessarily know what the average moviegoer who is responding That's to these true, cinema scores is like they all they may know is hey this is a movie about brad pitt going to space and then yeah i could understand why they might not necessarily why everyone who goes in wanting to see brad pitt in space a brad pitt in space movie might not come out being like oh that was the greatest movie ever after they watch ad astra even though it is a really great movie yeah i i guess people went in expecting guardians of the galaxy or something out of ad astra yeah um interstellar even right which again not an action movie but definitely more action to it than than the cerebral film like you know what james what anything james gray is doing basically but anyway yeah so that's the next up for brad pitt and aaron taylor johnson seemingly scott switching gears and talking about what i think i i'm still safe in saying is you know the best thing that we've watched this year you know one of the stars coming out of that it just got announced as a leading role i believe in this yeah. film i'll let you tell us about it the lead role i believe um yeah. yeah so normal people is what you're alluding to hulu series we've talked about it on here before and you know when we watched the show we kind of wondered or at least i kind of wondered you know this this seems like one of those things for the two stars where they're never really they may never really outlive those roles right they may always be connell and marianne from uh from normal people um, however, you know, it, they're both getting chances to break out of that mold, right? We already talked about Paul Mescal, who's going to be, we don't know what the size of the role is going to yeah. be, but he is going to be in that Olivia Wilde film. Um, and then uh, now Daisy Edgar Jones, right? He played Marianne in Normal People, is getting a starring role in a very big project, it must be said. Uh, and that is the adaptation of Where the Crawdads Sing, which has been, you know, the best selling book on Amazon and, and bestseller list for a hundred years now, it seems like it's, it's always, I mean, I think the book was released like two years ago or something and it's still Uh, like more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. The numbers that it's done by now, I'm sure it's broken records and stuff, but I mean, this is a hugely popular book. I read it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good book. Um, 
which is maybe a little bit surprising given the popularity of it, but I thought um, that it was, it was very good um, and very well written by Delia Owens, who is the author. Um, oh, and, I lied. It was two years ago. Never mind. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's, it, again, it's still done like incredible numbers, but yeah. So, you know, obviously I think it was, this was always destined to become a movie. Of course, not surprisingly, it has been picked up by, Reese Witherspoon's uh, production company, you know, this is right down her alley. Uh, and, and so, and for that reason, honestly, I'm a little surprised that it didn't go the miniseries route because it is a somewhat lengthy novel. Um, there is a lot of story to it. And, you know, Reese Witherspoon, again, she's done that with Big Little Lies. She's done it with Little Fires Everywhere recently, both, you know, big novels in the same vein um, that she, you know, ha was producing in addition to starring in, she, you know, she's not going to be starring in, um, where the crawdads sing for what we know, but Dead, Daisy Edgar Jones is going to play. I believe she's going to be playing the lead role of Kaya. Um, and I, you know, I'm personally thrilled to see her get another role in a role of this magnitude. I, I wouldn't necessarily think of her immediately in this role um, because we're talking about like a. I mean, this is very much like a, the book is very much like sort of a Mark Twain style, like um, almost like adventure coming of age story set in the Deep South. Um, and obviously she is English. Um, however, she did a great job with doing an Irish accent in, um, in Normal People. Um, I, I you know, read a lot of reviews from like actual Irish people and, and I, I, Irish people talking about how, wow, they were really surprised at how good her accent was, despite her not actually being Irish. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lenny Abramson's Irish, so if he's going to cast her in it, then let him cast yeah. her in it. So the point is she's done a little bit of chameleonic stuff before, at least with her accent and stuff like that. Um, so there's no reason why she can't do that again. Um, and yeah, I, th I think it's a, a, a great choice um, when I think more about it. Um, and I'm I'm just excited to see what, um, you know, she can do outside the context of normal people. This is going to be directed by someone. Uh, I can't remember exactly what her name is, but she has like one Netflix film under her um, under her belt. And that's about it. But female director, which is cool and written by one of the writers of Beasts of the Southern Wild which makes complete sense because I think there are a lot of similarities between the story of Beasts of the Southern Wild and story here and where the crawdads sing. But this will be a big movie whenever it comes out. And so it's great to see someone in something that we love, but maybe not many people have watched necessarily, um, is going to get a lot more exposure in this movie. There's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's Olivia Newman is the name of the director. And I believe she she did first match from what I'm looking at on Netflix. I didn't see it. It's a sports drama. Uh, not, not sure what that really that is. She's also directed episodes of like all those like broadcast television, TV shows like FBI, Chicago fire, Chicago PD. Uh, okay. Is that Dick Wolf who makes all those? I don't remember. Dick Wolf does law and order actually. Does yeah, he but do I Chicago? think he's, he's probably involved with some of those. He's like the Chuck Lorre of like the crime of drama on, yeah, on yeah, network yeah. TV. Yeah. Yeah, so no, good, good that I mean, and not surprising that Reese Witherspoon is getting, you know, basically this, you know, powerhouse team of females to create this film, right? Um, and I think that's good. And look, I'm glad this project is going to Daisy Edgar Jones and not going to like Elle Fanning, who is like probably the first in line for like all, all of these projects. I feel like this would be yeah. like right in the wheelhouse of Elle Fanning. I will say, Scott, I know this probably may have gotten you even more excited, but the person that I kind of thought of when I read the book a little bit was was definitely Caitlin Deaver. Oh, interesting. Yeah, see, that's interesting. I haven't read the book. Um, Caitlin Deaver is definitely got enough star power now where she's doing 
more things. And so I'm glad that mm-hmm. Daisy Edgar is getting something different too. But look, if, if you're going to tell me Caitlin Deavers and something, fine by me. Yeah. Send I it. Uh, I'm ha- I would certainly be happy with that. All right. Anything else you want to add or should we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I think that's it. It was somewhat light on news uh, this past week. And so that was definitely something that caught my eye. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a bunch of trailers, right? We didn't talk about them, but there was the main yeah, trailer. Mank. There yeah. was the Margot Robbie Dreamland trailer. Yeah, no, that movie Dreamland, it's played at some festivals. I think got, got pretty good reviews. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think I knew about it at one point, but it just like, you know, fell on my memory until I saw this trailer. Um, but yeah, Margot Robbie and uh, Travis Fimmel and uh, Lola Kirk are in this. Um, and so I think an interesting role for Margot Robbie. But um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that one when it comes out. And of course, I'm looking forward to Mank. I mean, not a surprise since we just did the Fincher countdown. I know you weren't thrilled about the trailer, but you'll hear some about that on our next episode, actually. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? Exactly. Yeah, so it's coming out in about a month's time. It's going to get a VOD release on November 17th. Dreamland is. Mank, okay. of course, also coming out in about a month's time on November 13th. On Netflix, I think. yes. Yeah, on Netflix, obviously. And don't don't hold your breath on that Lola Kirk role because it's just a voice. It seems like a very small voice role based on what I'm looking at. So. Oh, really? I thought I remember seeing her in the trailer, but I guess I was wrong. Oh, it says bad. older Phoebe like Evans voice for Lola Kirk. Oh, well, there you go. Well, I do like her, so I wanted to get her name out there. But alas, this won't be the one. Yeah, probably probably not the one for Lola Kirk fans. But hey, if you like Lola Kirk for some reason more than Margaret Robbie, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't because I don't not familiar with Lola Kirk's work. But check it out if you want to hear her Mist- voice. Mistress America, quality yep. film by Noah Baumbach. Noah Baumbach, good filmmaker. And on that note... Uh, let's wrap up episode 113 of Some Like It's Scott. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarby Dent. And I can be found at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. Also, please subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. Scott spends a lot of time each week on that um, and frankly does a really good job. So check that out in the link uh, in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page as well at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. There, where there's a bunch of different reward tiers, check out all the different tiers that you could potentially pledge to and support us if you can. If not, that's totally okay. Uh, you can still find us on all of your normal podcast feeds, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever else you listen to podcasts, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed as well as subscribed and shared. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. You won't have to wait long, as Scott was alluding to, for us to return as we'll be back this Saturday on Halloween with a special Halloween episode where Scott and I will be joined by friend of the pod, Danny Kunkel, to thematically review one of their favorite horror movies of all time, one which I haven't seen before, and that is 1996's Scream. Until then, however, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.